talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Election day in Ontario. Don't forget to exercise your right to vote. Remember, you can't complain if you don't vote. Here's Scott Thompson. That's right. It's voting day. Get out and express yourself. I know. It's it's best I can do, though. I mean, how many voting songs are there? Really? Do you know? I you know, I, protest songs, all sorts. But you know, and and I didn't want it to turn into a demonstration. We haven't even uh, closed the polls yet. There's plenty of time for that. Uh, so, you know, express yourself. Express yourself. Get out there. It's your chance. And as Kurt said, man, if you don't vote, you can't complain. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's the day to do it. And uh, and what else do we need to say? Nine till nine, get your voting card, tells you where to go. Uh, it's easy peasy. Did it earlier. Uh, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board. Diane and Dave in the newsroom. Love to hear your take, too, on the poll question of the day, which is, are you voting today? Are you going to, uh, you're going to get out there and, and uh, exercise your right? And, and you know, it was uh, right now 52% of you are saying yes. 51% are saying, uh, or no, I got that wrong. <laughs> Sorry. 42 percent uh hang on let me 52 percent are saying yes uh five percent saying no four percent say 42 percent saying i've already voted well that's amazing uh that's great to hear and you know i went out with my uh and we did this last time during the uh last federal election the uh the COVID election that uh that the prime minister called and uh my my daughter is uh is of age now she's 19 turning 20 this year so the, the last one was the first time that uh we voted together uh which was kind of funny you know taking your kid to vote but i think it's one of those things that you got to do you got to uh you got to instill in the kids that uh to get involved and to exercise their right and do whatever they they have to do and it was funny because uh this morning i was out and about and then uh i thought oh i want to do this before there's any rush or uh lunch hour or or the dinner hour or any of that stuff and uh came and grabbed my card and said to the girl do you want to go yep all right let's go next thing you know we're in the car and uh uh, we're at the uh, local community center and casting our ballots. So easy peasy. There was, I would say, a steady stream in and out, but absolutely no lineup. You're in, you do your thing, and you turn around and you get back out. I'm sure as uh, the afternoon progresses and people come home from work, it will uh, it will uh, get a little busier. And uh, from what we hear through uh, uh, Elections Ontario, it's been uh, pretty smooth so far. So uh, no problems, no concerns. Everything's moving well. And you got until uh, 9 o'clock tonight to cast your ballot. Uh, in the provincial election. Coming up, of course, after this, this show, uh, uh, at 6 o'clock, our election coverage starts on CHML, so you want to hang on for that. It's going to be a busy night, or maybe it'll be a pretty quick night. We, we, we don't know, I guess, at this point, which way it's going to go. Uh, can't be sure, but certainly with the polls are 
uh, are, are saying that uh, we're in for uh, more of the same of what we got right now. But anyway, that being said, uh, it can always change on Election Day. Uh, as most uh, politicians will tell you, the only poll that counts is the last one, and that's, of course, on Election Day. So get out and exercise. You're right. Otherwise, you can't whine and complain like we do. And you got until uh, 9 o'clock tonight to do so. And starting at 6, uh, we'll start our coverage on CHML of uh, election coverage for the 22 or the 2022 election in Ontario. All right. Uh, lots of chatter about this one. We were just talking about the polls and uh, affordability issues, pretty much the top five, whether it's the high, uh, price, high price of housing, high price of groceries, high price of gasoline, uh, high price of everything, inflation. Uh, and, and healthcare as well. Obviously big components of, uh, of this year's election. And, uh, many are surprised that, uh, after the rough start that Doug Ford got after the last election, uh, which again, it was uh, a PC minority, or sorry, majority and, uh, the official opposition becoming the NDP and the liberals literally falling off the face of the map. So, uh, many are predicting that it'll be a pretty typical, uh, election as far as the front runner is concerned. The real uh, contest will be for second place if uh, Andrea Horvath and the NDP can hang on to the official opposition or if, in fact, uh, Stephen Del Duca and uh, the Liberals can uh, make the gains that they lost in the last election uh, when you could pretty much fit most of the party into the back of a van. So uh, that's it'll be fascinating to watch tonight. And, of course, after 6 o'clock on CHML, we'll, uh, we'll keep you abreast of what is going on. All right, uh, lots of chatter about what's going to happen with the other leaders if they don't make grounds. Uh, Stephen Del Duca, some are wondering whether he'll even get a seat uh, in his own riding. And the other question is, is Andrea Horvath going to continue on after uh, this being her fourth election? And where do you move from, you know, from this? Uh, here's what Colin DeMello had to say. Global News, uh, Queens Park Bureau Chief on the future of Andrea Horvath. The big question will be, is she going to step out and try to run as mayor of Hamilton? And if she does, there's one scenario here. What happens if she wins her seat but loses the election and then chooses to step down as leader? Is she going to stay on as an MPP for the next four years like Kathleen Wynne did as an example? Mm -hmm. I don't know. All right, Colin DeMello, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief, uh, on with Brick Samprin this morning, talking about what is going to happen or what could possibly happen. And again, you don't know until the results are in and and uh, everything uh, shakes down. So 6 o'clock tonight, coverage here on CHML, and uh, it should be an interesting evening either way. All right, uh, great show coming up. Hope you hang around for it. Uh, love to uh, love for you to be a part of it, too, by sending us a note at Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, fascinating year when it comes to hand. Hamilton and especially the downtown core. Uh, my goodness, it's just been uh, well. It, it was taking off, uh, obviously, long before the uh, the global pandemic. And then, obviously, we noticed what ha- we know what happened with that. But man, now that things are kicking back into gear, Hamilton is taking off where. Uh, uh, it is taking off from where it left off, and it is uh, it is just gangbusters. A- amazing to see the amount of development, especially residential. We're going to talk about that coming up in a little bit. Also, uh, all the chatter, and, and Scott Radley did a column on this in the spec about the Hamilton schools and, and stuff going on. It's not just Hamilton. It's everywhere uh, where kids are getting caught up in social media stuff, and then the next thing you know, uh, the, the SWAT teams at the school, the task force, trying to figure out what's going on. And we will try to do just that when we talk about that coming up this hour also the queen's jubilee officially has begun uh in a four-day long weekend of uh, celebrations for uh, people in the uk so uh, we'll touch on that and give you an 
up-to-date uh, edition of what is going on and how the Queen is doing on this, her 70th year on the throne. Also, uh, it, there is appearing to be a push for ethical oil and Canada to be a part of that with the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine and obviously has brought the fossil fuel industry into geopolitics and 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 people using it to hold other uh, other nations hostage as in Russia. So the push for ethical oil. We'll talk about that and what it all means coming up a little later on as well. I remember chatting because uh, I think I've been here uh, I don't know, 19 years now again, the second time. So I remember when things weren't too good and uh, and and many were looking at various ways to promote the city and, and draw people to it and my goodness, now look where we are and we talk about building permits hitting certain milestones and now we're seeing those milestones be doubled. Uh, it is a very exciting time to be in the hammer and I think I've been saying that for the last 10 years or so uh, but even post pandemic uh, no sign of slowing down let's bring in Judy Lamb manager, uh, manager commercial districts and small business for the city of Hamilton with us now Judy thank you for the time I hope you're doing well I'm doing well we're very busy but we're doing really well so talk about pre-pandemic and sort of, if I can be so optimistic, post-pandemic, Judy. Uh, we know that Hamilton had turned the corner quite a while ago, but obviously things slow down during a global pandemic, as we've all seen. That being said, things are starting to pick up again. Is Hamilton continuing on where it, it was? Has it faltered a bit or is things just going north? You know, I think Hamilton as a whole actually fared fairly well even during the pandemic, uh, the, you know, you saw last year we had $2 billion in building permits, which is a record in the whole history of Hamilton. And that was during a pandemic. So, and, and I remember um, it wasn't that long ago chatting with your office. And when we hit 1 billion, that was a huge yeah. deal. And, and that, that wasn't that, that was long ago. <laughs> no. And so, I mean, whether we'll, repeat this i think we'll get close but we've been over the one billion dollars uh for several years now mm. and to hit the two billion was really exciting i think you know in terms of who the uh which companies the pandemic affected the most obviously it would be small business you know the the restaurant retail mm -hmm. services sector and um you know for them, yes, for sure, some affected them greatly. And, you know, we, we actually are surprised by how well some of them were able to pivot and survive. And obviously, a lot of that's due to some of the supports that the various government uh, had provided. But, you know, I think on the whole, and I'll be taking another inventory in terms of let's look at the retail vacancies, storefronts, that sort of thing. But, um Overall, I think we, we did pretty well compared to some other cities. And I, I think what's really changed over the last decade or so as well, Judy, is just the residential. I remember, again, having conversations where, you know, it'll be really important for us to get a, uh, a permanent, like a large grocery store downtown yes. where, you know, everybody can go because then that builds the residence. And, and making a big deal about that. And now, mm -hmm. again, you know, in, in this article in the spec, you know, you're talking about how uh, how those numbers have just doubled over the years as far as the amount of residential building going on. So I think, you know, the strategy was really good when when you think about what do we need to support the commercial in the downtown and other in the business improvement areas. And it's it's the residential because they're the ones that mm -hmm. even during the pandemic, when the office workers, let's say, stayed at home or working hybrid now, 
that who will still need to keep going out and getting coffees and going to the restaurant, going to the uh, grocery stores. It is those residents. Now, if you have a central business district that's just office and it hollows out at five o'clock, yeah. then those businesses will suffer. But we, we're we so lucky that we have so many neighborhoods surrounding our office. And then to keep building these uh, condos and apartments, then that will continue to support. And that's where I think our downtown is poised to do really well because we're adding on to this population that will be living here. Uh, often you hear, and I remember this years ago as well, uh, comparing Hamilton to Brooklyn. Why that comparison? Well, you know what? And I, I did a learning trip to Brooklyn, and we wanted to find out how did they get to where they were because they were sort of an industrial-type city and, and not doing very well. And what we learned is, you know, in Manhattan, which, yes, is, is a little bit closer than Hamilton to Toronto, but it was a basically one subway stop. And the people that were living in Manhattan, because it's so expensive, was basically the C-suite. But the actual mm-hmm. workers, the accountants and nurses and everyone else, they lived in Brooklyn because that was more affordable. When you have eventually the people living in that city, I guess eventually senior management said, should we not move our company to where everyone else is living, our employees. And when they created the conditions, which is like excess office space was converted to mixed use to allow residential, we already allow that. And so they said a key was really making sure that uh, you had residents living and then the companies will come. So I think in terms of strategy where you know, we mentioned that in the in the toughest times of downtown, when bankers wouldn't even give developers a loan mm, if they found yeah. out the project was downtown, we created that loan program. We became mm-hmm. the banker that assisted with the construction and all the other incentives that sort of meshed together was why now it takes a while to build up. But now we see that uh, look at all these uh, projects downtown. And that we're going to have, and there's so much more, even uh, when you look at the formal consultations with the city, you're talking thousands and thousands, like 10 plus thousand. And so um, I think uh, downtown is really poised to even change greater in the next few years. Uh, That was my next question. We've only got about a a minute left. What do you think the next five years are going to be like for downtown? Obviously LRT, but beyond that. Well, very exciting because you look at, okay, the increased projects. Uh, we're gonna, we have the downtown entertaining precinct where we're refurbishing for some Terrell Center and the convention center. So even uh, attracting those conventions and tourists will increase. We're gonna um, have LRT at least in construction and almost finished hopefully. So uh, I think we're gonna do really well. I think it's gonna be the most exciting era of downtown Hamilton. Very exciting to be a part of. Judy Lamb with us, manager of commercial districts and small businesses for the city of Hamilton, talking about ongoing development. And it only looks like sunny skies ahead. Judy, thanks for the time. Congratulations. Good luck moving forward. Thank you very much. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We were chatting on this show, and um, you know, Radley has done a column on this in the in the Spectator. And you know, I was talking about a, a friend of my kids who had a situation like this happen at his school, and it just seems lately that, and it's not just Hamilton; it's everywhere, whether it's in Haltner in Toronto or, or where have you. Uh, and that's a rash of shooting threats, whether it's people with uh, replica guns, whether it's uh, people writing uh, what's going to happen on the wall of a school somewhere, uh, which seems to be another uh, copycat situation that we see going on. Uh, what is the reasoning for this? I mean, is it kids being kids or is this a wake up call? Let's bring in Perry Mason, former school resource monitor and with us now. Perry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thanks. I hope you're well, too. Yeah, thanks so much. So what are your thoughts on this, Perry? Is this tomfoolery or is this a wake-up call? Well, I, I'm hesitant to call it tomfoolery, um, but it's probably close to that. Um, we've uh, we've had these kind of calls. This is not new. Um, you know, for oh, um, 30 or 40 years, uh, uh, you know, we've had many, many um, calls like this, and uh I was talking to a colleague of mine who's a retired vice principal, and uh, between us, we couldn't remember anything actually uh, coming to fruition or happening. So, and you add to, you know, you say this has been going on for for a while. You add to this uh, social media, and does that trend, those motivations just seem to spread quicker? Yeah, I mean, in the when I was a younger officer and as a school officer, back then it was more bomb threats. Um, mm. often they'd happen on a Friday afternoon or a day on which there were exams. Um, so back then it was more so the bomb threats and we didn't have social media to, uh, you know, no pun intended to blow it up. Um, yeah. and, and nowadays they have the same kinds of calls. It's just sort of evolved, you know, from bomb threats to school shooters. Um, you know, kids have more information, social media, news, and, uh, that's sort of the, the threat of the day. And these seem to be, in some ways, and I'm not necessarily saying with what's been going on locally, but it, 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 at times it seems to be part of a social media challenge. You do this stuff and film the result, whatever, and, and post. Yeah, I haven't heard of that one. Uh, now, mind you, I've, I've been retired for about eight years. Uh, but I, I know one way or another, um, social media is at play. Uh, for the most part, um, people who make these kind of threats try to stay anonymous, um, because, you know, if they get investigated, they're going to, they're going to find out what's happening. And as a matter of fact, um, I know that these things are investigated at the CID level or detective level. Um, it's not that, uh, it, they're, they're paid attention to for sure. Uh, and they're properly investigated every time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we're talking about social media and the influx of that, obviously, over the last several years and such. But even the fact that, you know, there's there's cameras everywhere, uh, whether it's in a school or what have you. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, uh, my kid's school, somebody pulls a fire alarm, which, again, one of those things, you know, certainly hasn't been the first time that's happened. Um, but again, a lot of the time, the first the first thing they do is look look to a video camera, and and the person is is caught. However, uh, in, in this situation where you know we've got people writing dates on walls, or uh, you know, or even people showing up with with replica handguns, um, it, it, do these sorts of activities seem a little bit more brazen now than they were uh, back in the day, per se? I, I don't think so. Um, this is not new. 
uh, it yeah. just sort of evolved in, in different forms. Uh, and yes, the cameras are there and they're very useful. Um, but, uh, you know, they're not the end all and be all to, to investigating this type of thing. So uh, as your as a school resource monitor retired now, um, what do you do with the student when you catch a student who is has done this or, you know, and I, I'm, and I'm guessing, you know, something with a replica handgun or a, a, a firearm of some sort is, is probably a little bit more serious. But how do you deal with a student? Well, if they've committed a crime, you would arrest them. Um, but again, they're very difficult to uh, uh, investigate uh, and, and find someone who's um, guilty of such a thing because they, they try to maintain an anonymity. Yeah. Um, and so that makes it much more difficult. I mean, there's, there's two things that will happen. They'll be investigated by the police as well as the school and uh, have uh, consequences in both places. So what about parents? Because I know, you know, e- even, you know, with the situation that, uh, you know, my son was sent a video of, of some kid that, it, you know, some video that was taken of, of a, uh, a replica gun situation uh, in Halton. And, and, I mean, you see this, and as a parent, it is terribly frightening. What do you say to the parents? You know, I mean, obviously, you know, you're saying that this, it's typical stuff. We see it all the time. It's just now evolved into whatever the the fad of the day is but what do you say to parents who are concerned especially when you see stuff like going uh, ha- has happened in in the u.s or uh, you know a place like texas well the first thing you try to do is reassure them uh, i was talking to some of my old colleagues in the media section in at the police department and just today they uh, had a town hall uh, two of them uh, virtually on teams and they had uh, four or five hundred people parents show up uh to ask the questions that they're concerned about. Uh, all of it's, you know, listening to your own uh, concern. Most of it is reassurance. And um, uh, because, again, I would tell them the same thing. Uh, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, had bomb threats. Nowadays, it's a school shooter threat. And so far that I'm aware of, none of it has come true. So uh, this is kids who are uh, pushing the envelope, who are trying to do something like you know, we've all seen as kids. It's just uh, it's evolved from y- yanking the fire alarm to now this sort of thing. For sure. Actually, that's the exact evolution that I remember. You know, yanking the fire alarm, fire alarm, bomb threats, now school shooter threats. Um, like I said, it's, it's, it's not new. It's just kind of taken a different form. Now, you know, I don't want to say that you don't pay attention to it. Yeah. And often there's increased patrols. Um, you know, it's responsibly investigated and taken seriously. Uh, but you need to take it with a grain of salt. Got to keep it in perspective. There you go. Yeah, All right, exactly. Perry Mason with us, former school resource monitor, talking about the rash of written threats and replica guns and everything else that seems to be going on uh, in the area schools of late. Perry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You know, it's either way, it's, um, you, you know, you can certainly see the concerns of the parents uh, who, you know, are, are seeing shots of this or video images of these situations. And uh, again, um, it, it's no wonder parents are getting, uh, are upset, are concerned about it and wondering if their kids are safe when they send them to school. But again, as Perry pointed out, it's important to uh, investigate these things, keep an open mind, but also keep it in perspective. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott.
Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Queen's Jubilee, 70 years on the throne, officially beginning today. Let's bring in Saad Salman, royal commentator, founder and editor of The Royal Watcher, and is watching for us all uh, live in London. He's with us now. Saad, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. I'm great to be on. So describe what you've seen today. Describe what it was like. It was uh, absolute chaos in places. There are massive crowds in London. I think it's almost unprecedented that hundreds of thousands of people that had descended on the city. I got there pretty much in advance, but I was very difficult for me to get to the palace and took quite a few hours for that. And I uh, basically, even those who had camped overnight outside the palace to get a glimpse of today's parade and then the royal family coming on the balcony, they were also unable to get a view because there are just so many people. And also there's uh, stands and everything up for the Jubilee concert in a few days, which prevented a lot of the views. So talk a little bit about the people that are camping out and, and, and how extensive is there? Do you, do you see a lot of that? Yeah, um, definitely. There have been people who have camped out outside the palace for the past three to four days and <laughs> to just be able to get a good position. And um, however, a lot of people were disappointed that they weren't able to get a good view of the queen eventually because of the way kind of it works. The people who arrive last are pushed forward when the barriers are broken down. So all the crowds, they move towards the palace after the parade and the all people right. who arrive last to get to see it first. So the people who camped out weren't <laughs> unable to get a glimpse of the queen. So uh, talk about the the infamous balcony shots and scenes and all of that. Uh, the Queen did make an appearance today. I understand she didn't hang around for long. Yes, so the Queen would have traditionally uh, ridden and gone to Horse Guards Parade for the Trooping the Color. Instead, this year she was represented by the Prince of Wales. And when they returned to the palace, she received a salute on the balcony, first standing with her cousin, the Duke of Kent. And then uh, around an hour later, the, she was uh, joined by other members of the royal family. For the first time, not the in- entire extended royal family as we've seen in the past, but just the main working members of the royal family as they watched the RAF fly past uh, and all the planes fly over the mall and towards the palace. So how much did the Queen actually participate uh, today? Was that pretty much it for her? Yeah, so she made two balcony appearances, and then she hosted a lunch at Buckingham Palace. And in the past few minutes, actually, it has just been announced that the Queen, uh, tomorrow there was a service of Thanksgiving at St. Paul's Cathedral, but uh, the official kind of guidance as well, she has really enjoyed today. She has become quite exhausted, so she's pulling out of tomorrow's service. Instead, the Queen will uh, light a Platinum Jubilee beacon this evening in a few minutes, actually. And that will be kind of her final uh, engagement for the next couple of days. So for tomorrow, then we'll see her attendance at the concert and the final Jubilee pageant, which is yet to be confirmed. And what about the royal kids on the balcony? I heard that was quite a show. Yes. So this year, we got uh, not just on the balcony, but the Cambridge kids. For the first time, they rode in carriages to the Shooping the Color ceremony uh, and saw that entirely. And we also saw other extended members of the royal family who came in buses, including Harry and Meghan, who were taken not in carriages but in buses to Horse Guards Parade to watch the ceremony and then brought back to the palace. 
and though they also did not appear on the balcony as well. So they it was a very changed format than what has traditionally been done. Oh, it, what must this do for tourism uh, with this event? I, I, you said that the, the the place is packed. I mean, there must be people there from all over the world. Definitely, yeah. Um, there were crowds from everywhere, and I saw, I heard so many different languages. Um, people are here specifically for the Jubilee, and it has given such a boost to the UK economy at this time. So uh, as this, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the Queen slowly bowing out of, of the rest of the festivities, what is in this for the public for the rest of the weekend? So tomorrow there's a service of Thanksgiving at St. Paul's Cathedral. Actually right now, in a few minutes, the Queen is lighting a Jubilee beacon at Buckingham pa- at Windsor Castle, while at the same time Prince William is going to be lighting it at Buckingham Palace. Um, at the and around the Commonwealth and the UK, uh, different countries have been lighting the beacons at the same time. So that's kind of the big spectacle for the rest of the day. Tomorrow, there's a service of Thanksgiving. The day after, on Saturday, there's a big Jubilee concert at, outside Buckingham Palace, which is the reason why those stands are there. And on the final day, there's a big Jubilee pageant, which has over 5,000 people coming together and to highlight the achievements of the Queen's reign. Has there anything been anything negative of this of this so far, Saad? Has there any been any downfall so far? Uh, so far, um, kind of the uh, general mood was quite positive. I did hear a lot of grumblings from people in the crowd, and also people who have traveled far and wide. That the way today's uh, trooping and everything else has been handled was not the best. They should mm. have kind of made provisions for such large crowds, and the fact that. People came from so far and were disappointed to not even get a glimpse of the royal family is quite awful. I luckily attended one of the trooping rehearsals last weekend, so I got to see the parade and Prince William. So I am not as disappointed as I would have been if I had traveled all this way and not been able to see anything. Saad Salman with us, royal commentator, founder and editor of The Royal Watcher, doing just that in the UK right now for the Queen's 70th uh, Jubilee. Uh, Saad, thanks so much for the time. We'll chat again. Be well. Have fun. Thank you. Obviously, we've been talking now for, what is it, at least 98 days about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how that has transpired uh, over the last several weeks and such, uh, not only to involve Russia and Ukraine, but the rest of Europe and then eventually the rest of the world. Uh, obviously, Russia now weaponizing its energy, which it supplies to uh, Europe in, in uh, as a result of the sanctions that are being put up against it. Uh, and as a result, it seems that uh, Europe has become a slave to Russia when it comes to its energy consumption. Fascinating article in the conversation uh, from Saibo Chen, Assistant Professor School of Professional Communication at Toronto Metropolitan University. The headline is, Calls for Ethical Oil Are Pushing Canada to Become a Petro-State. Uh, will this invasion of Ukraine and the Russian weaponization of fossil fuel change Canada's uh, energy policy in any way. Let's bring in Saibo Chen. He is with us now. Or sorry, Sibo. Sibo, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, uh, a little lesson here. Uh, what is ethical oil? What is a petrostate? Can you give us some definitions? Yeah, so ethical uh, oil essentially was, you know, all the argument you have been heard recently. So basically, essentially, they will argue that, you know, because of you know the Canadian uh, political system, because you know the democratic system we have, so oil we produce have a higher moral ground, so that you know they sh- it should be quote unquote better oil compared 
you know, for example, with oil from Iran or other kind of undemocratic states. So petrol state, um, I think there are two ways to define it. One is this kind of popular understanding. Essentially, people tend to use the word petrol state to describe, um, you know, states that highly dependent upon, you know, oil revenues, but also, you know, in the way like within academic literature, petrol state was de describing more like a economic model, which was kind of mostly kind of resource driven, particularly driven by, you know, oil and the gas industry. So obviously, we we have seen Canada pulling away from its uh, mm -hmm. its energy industry, and, and now at a time when we're seeing what's happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and and, and Europe and such, uh, will we see uh, world events change Canada's energy policy in any way? Uh, will we be asked to help out and and supply cleaner energy or ethical uh, energy to to the to other parts or sorry to Europe in order to to replace this dependency on uh, bad players um i i mean this is definitely a controversial topic right because this not only involves canada itself but also involves the overall global um energy landscape but mm -hmm. i would kind of tr track back a little bit because clearly i mean is for especially for people like us who study about you know environmental issues um Right, Canadian oil is quote unquote not clean, right? So, you know, when we say clean, we're talking about environmental pollution. There has been well documented about, let's say, the environmental impacts of bitumen. Right. And so it's not really clean. It's not really, it's not really yeah. clean. It's just cleaner, right? <laughs> yeah. And also, I think that the issue there is really um, when we're talking about, you know, changing energy landscape that actually involves kind of infrastructure change, which actually takes a very long term. So I think a lot of, you know, not only, not only, you know, people like, like me who are following about, you know, discussion about, you know, the dynamics between, you know, renewable and, uh, you know, decarbonization, but also for people observing global energy demand and supply, right? People were really kind of speculating, are we, in the case of this kind of, you know, Russia's invasion into Ukraine, right? Are we really looking at a short-term event that maybe quote unquote end within a few months, or are we really looking at um, a long-term long chain? But also, I mean, adding into this equation, so this actually just happened a few days ago, right? So Europe decided to say they they pass pass the ban on you know importing Russian oil, but in the right. same time, they also kind of make a commitment, say they are going to increasing their domestic supply, renewable energy supply. So that's also something to be taken into the consideration. So Again, given, I mean, go ahead, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. It, it, so given, it, it, I mean, it, given the time we are going to spend on you know you know, developing energy infrastructure, I really don't think that, you know, we, you know, there would be kind of sufficient motivation for further kind of, you know, economic investment to actually alter Canadians energy export infrastructure. Sibo, it always seems when we have these discussions, it's mm -hmm. either or. It's either one extreme or and the other, or the other. And to the experts I've talked to, it's going to be a mix of everything. It's going to be a mix of this, a mix of that, a mix of what have you, mm -hmm. in order to solve these issues. So how do you balance climate change, which, you know, I think most Canadians, uh, the, the polls, uh, over 90% Canadians are concerned about it. What they're, where the difference is, is how do we get there? So how do you balance climate change with the obvious energy demands? Because it appears 
at this point, we've shut the taps off a little too early before there is an alternative. Uh, Russia has taken advantage of that and, and holding Europe hostage. So how do we find the balance between, you know, because there's, there's some that say, you know, we should be sending cleaner natural gas to, to Europe or wherever. There's others, there's others that say, no, just keep it in the ground. We don't even want to take it out. So obviously we're not there yet. Uh, Germany on the cutting edge of renewables and we know what they're doing and how reliant they are on Russia. So how do we balance the next five, 10, 15, 20, even 30, 40 years until we get there? Um, I mean, First of all, I mean, thinking, I think the problem right now, I think a lot of concentration discussion was really about, you know, um, you know, you know, building new energy infrastructure. And mm-hmm. I mean, most energy infrastructure, they are very kind of investment heavy. Essentially, if you are, let's say, building a new kind of LNG export terminal, for example, like the case in BC, if you see the original planning, all the building kind of the design life has to last for, you know, 30 to 40 years to actually break even. Right, if you're right. considering all of the subsidies provided to them. So then, you know, this goes back to the fundamental question. So if we are talking about, you know, addressing climate change, if we are talking about decarbonization, what's the actual timeline we are talking about? At least from COP26, right, the recently uh, concluded um, Glasgow um, meeting last year, we are basically looking at, you know, a drastic way to addressing energy, cons- um, to decreasing fossil fuel consumption by 2035 which was, you know, less than, which was only about like more than 10 years away. So in that case, I mean, I think it would be very, very kind of irrational to actually kind of proposing building new infrastructure. So that being said, Siba, we've yeah. been, we've been mm-hmm. talking about this for the last 30 years. And as I mentioned, there's Germany who's been on the yeah. cutting edge of this. So, you know, we're hearing we have to be investing more in doing that. And I agree with that 100%. But again, mm-hmm. we're not there yet. So, you know, you're talking about 30 or 40 years for these to run their lifetime, these energy projects. You know, that seems about right, because, again, it doesn't seem to be a this or that decision, a left or right or on or off decision. It's it's a mixture of things to get us there. I mean, I think the thing is very interesting, because if you're looking at like one of the example I gave in the article approaching the end was if we look at Norway. Right. So Norway actually in many ways has been categorized as the same like Canada. Right. Norway is also very dependent upon oil revenues and uh, Norway has also been kind of making the pledge of you know decarbonization and uh, Norway has made it very clear right Norway already being very explicit about you know facing out their energy you know they're basically their oil and gas export so there's no again Sibo that's world. great for that's great for yeah. Norway and Canada but what about the rest of the mm-hmm. world that's calling for help what about the rest of Europe that's calling for help that needs this energy yeah, but the, again, like if we're really looking detail into the European Union's plan, they were not thinking about 30 or 40 years. Hmm. Within their, when they were banning Russian oil, like they are pushing for, you know, significantly increasing their renewable energy demand by 2030. That's actually the timeline they set up. We were not talking about 30 or 40 years. So that goes back. I think the problem is, is really about, you know, how do we make using increasing the efficiency of our current fossil fuel infrastructure, definitely, I mean, it's not like shutting them off overnight, but definitely looking around how do we improve their efficiency and more importantly, how do we, you know, redirecting revenues from the fossil fuel sector to, you know, other sectors, not only renewable, but also, I mean, you know, the pandemic creates this kind of economic disruption, right? So right. there is mm. 
there is a now the urgent question is really about you know reallocating all the economic economic resources we have to actually building a multiple sectors. The problem regarding you know this discussion about energy, energy like one of the key findings from the literature talking about petrol state is that petrol state all petrol states are economically vulnerable in the sense that because their dependency upon resource driven economy so that many of them is mm. they, they, they are going to be trapped in this kind of boom and the bust circle. So people have been seeing, right, we're looking at the current situation. So Russia has weaponized that their energy, you know, trying to, you know, kind of evade this kind of um, trying to kind of using them in kind of geological conflicts. But on the other flip of the coin, so that's also because their economy was so dependent upon energy export. So that that's almost like they are yeah. desperate, right? That's the only weapon they have. It's so a fascinating discussion, and yeah. we'll have it again, Sibo. We are plum out of time. Sibo Chen with his assistant professor, School of Professional Communication, Toronto Metropolitan University, talking about ethical oil and a petrostate being Canada. It is 4.30, news on the way. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. It is election day in Ontario. Get out and exercise. You're right. You've got until 9 o'clock tonight to do it. Take your ID. Take your voting card. Uh, the place where you go is on the back of that card. And coming up after 6 o'clock tonight, CHML will begin its election night coverage and take you all the way through uh, the results. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive VP at Leger, and is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, uh, Scott. Great to join you again. Yes, keeping well. Uh, thanks for the time for joining us. Has has there really has there really anything been any great changes or movement from the beginning to now the last day of this election campaign? Has have we really seen any jumps or dips, or has it stayed pretty much the same? Well, it's interesting, uh, Scott Leger, uh, You know, this is our fifth poll during the uh, during the election campaign, and we polled every week, including one right at the very beginning. And I was looking at that very question uh, before I jumped on the call with you. And quite frankly, no, there hasn't really been much movement. You know, the, the PCs uh, started this campaign off at about 36%. They peaked up and down, and, and uh, but really stayed uh, well within that range. And, and we have them now at 40%. The, the NDP were remarkably steady throughout our, our uh, Leger polling. And... Likewise, the Liberals saw a little bit of a blip up in the middle part of the campaign, but but only uh, by four points. And you know that's uh, I think that's the story of the campaign. Uh, it was steady as for the for the Conservatives, for Guts Conservatives. I think they're happy, steady as she goes. And the NDP and Liberals, I suspect, there's a bit of frustration uh, as they sit back and wait for uh, votes to come in. Uh, it, it's it's interesting because I've heard some commentators say that uh, there wasn't really a lot of election, or sorry, a lot of uh, issues in this election. It was more about the managing of the election campaign for the incumbent. Um, but interesting, uh, looking at your poll here, the campaign features or events that most influence how Ontario's uh, will vote in the provincial election are 46% the parties, platforms, or ideas, 32% the handling of the pandemic, and the government record at 29%. I think what sets this election apart from others, and, and I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on this, is that the issues this time out are very, very much different from the top issues that we saw 
pre-pandemic. In other words, we would see a lot of social issues before the pandemic. Now the issues are pretty much all economic, whether it's uh, the cost of living, uh, inflation, the cost of energy, uh, the cost of housing. It seems that our priorities have shifted in this election uh, compared to others. Is that accurate, Andrew? I, I, I would say uh, very accurate, Scott. Our polling, uh, not only in this camp, not in this campaign, but also just some of our leisure polling in general has seen the public very much interested in that post-pandemic um, imp- uh, period. They're looking to see what's uh, get the economy back on track. Uh, there's, you know, from a, I would say from the, the closest to a social sort of aspect would be, you know, repairs and the, the re, sort of rebuilding of, of some of our healthcare system and our supports mm-hmm. for seniors. But, but really, it, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, I would say a real growth mentality. I think the public is is wanting to see, uh, they feel the economy and things just in general have taken a taken a beating in the past two years of the pandemic, and they they're they they expect and they're looking to see the part you know to see ideas from parties that are going to get uh, you know get people working and get the economy growing and and I think to some degree that's probably been a bit of a hindrance to the to the opposition parties in this election because I think they they wanted to talk a bit more about about the pandemic record and, and how it was handled and, and and the state of things going into the pandemic but um, the public was really set on um, on much more focused on you know what are you what are you going to do for me in the future as opposed to uh, what did you do uh, for me in the past Andrew ends with his executive VP with Leger talking about where the heads of Ontarians are as we head to the polls. Uh, Andrew, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Obviously, with uh, a global pandemic and uh, I don't know how I used to keep track of how many days it was. I don't even do that anymore on this. Uh, I guess that's six, seven, eight inches of paper that are beside my desk that are past shows. Anyway, I digress uh, with uh, the global pandemic, everything has changed. I remember in the first few months, people thought, oh, I can eat and drink my way out of this. And then uh, habits that you formed over the last two and a half years uh, have now become the norm. What do we do now moving forward? We're talking about hybrid models. And with the technology allowing us to do all of this, how much is too much? Ontario employers uh, now are legally obligated to have a right to disconnect policy. Uh, but it is very broad. Obviously, how do you manage this? How do you balance this? Uh, how do you police this or enforce this? Let's bring in Mackenzie Irwin, Toronto lawyer specializing in employment law with some, uh, some Furo, uh, Sam Furo to mark an LLP and is with us now. Mackenzie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So what does this mean? What will this mean for the average uh, employee? You having the right to disconnect. What does that mean? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's going to depend on what your employer, how seriously your employer is taking it. So um, as of today, um, employers have to have uh, a right to disconnect policy in place. What that policy contains is up to the employer. So Hmm. the term, you know, all it really covers is that um, the Ontario government has basically put in a a requirement for all of these employers to have a policy addressing what their right to disconnect policy is. 
and communicate it to their employees. So the legislation itself doesn't actually require that employers provide their employees with the right to disconnect. It only requires that those employers um, come up with a written policy. So do we need, or in other words, should there be more details from the employer or the government on this, or is this a starting point for the discussion because it's uncharted territory? Yeah, I mean, I think the purpose, the real purpose of the legislation is to get employers to kind of turn their mind to this issue. Um, You know, we're having a real, really tough time with this pandemic, um, with blurring the lines between what work and personal time. So the right to disconnect legislation is really getting employers to, to turn their mind to what what their expectations are of their employees and to properly communicate those expectations to their employees. To me, Mackenzie, this kind of feels like uh, maternity leave or paternity leave. Uh, yeah, we're offering it, but we really don't want you to take it for any length of time. Is, can you see the same sort of similarities happening here with this? Well, yeah, it's going to depend on what your employer has actually said and, and laid out in that policy. You're going to find, I, I'm, I'm sure we're going to see employers that just simply give a blanket, you know, you have a right to disconnect, but not really give any details as to what that mm. is. Um, but, you know, just to tick the box that they have that policy in place. Mm. But if an employer is giving you some sort of um if they're they're holding you to and they're com- communicating, you know, you're not expected to respond to emails outside of the nine to five, um, and they're they're breaching that policy. They're not at, at holding themselves to that policy. Um, that's where we're going to come into issues. Now we're also hearing on the other side of this coin, uh, you know, the employer employees are now slowly getting back into the driver's seat because priorities have changed over the pandemic. And a lot of people are going, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do it this way. So um, will this be an issue or a gray area or are our attitudes changing? And it's just employers have got to come up with this stuff if they want to keep if they want to keep their talent. Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise that um, employers who prioritize a healthy work-life balance, um, you know, they're going to be retaining more talent. They're going to have a happier workforce with less burnout um, and ultimately higher talent retention and recruitment. Um, For employees, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Employees right now are really in the driver's seat. Um, There's a high demand for um, hiring new employees. And as you're going through the recruitment process, it might be something that you add to your list of questions to ask a potential employer to ask to see what their right to disconnect policy is. Um, and that might help you decide, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more inclined to go to an employer that's got a proper right to disconnect policy in place and, and something that I can see myself um, jiving with. Are you concerned about this as an employment lawyer or is it the fact that it just isn't detailed enough that it's going to matter or will ever be used in any sort of litigation? It's just too early in all of this. It's just, as you said, a guideline at this point to start the discussion. Yeah, well, I, I think, I mean, ultimately, the what the Ontario government has done is they're, they're really forcing employers to turn their mind to it. I think it's a starting point. Um, obviously, the government can't know. Um, there's no one size fits all yeah. for these kinds of policies. Dif- um, the government can't know what individual employers' um, you know requirements are, what their needs are. So I think it's a, a first step. But um, w- with those employers that are having um, you know detailed and putting thought into what th- what their policies 
are, um, you're going to see, I think we will see different employees um, coming forward with complaints where their employers aren't, uh, are breaching their own policy, which, which will be definitely something that uh, will come up a lot, come across my desk a lot going forward. Hmm, a new world. Uh, Mackenzie Irwin with us, Toronto lawyer specializing in employment law, Sanfiro Tamarkin LLP. Now in Ontario, you have the right to disconnect. Mackenzie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Election day, you've got till 9 o'clock to grab your card and head to your polling station on the back of your card. And after 6 o'clock tonight, uh, CHML will start uh, counting them down, I guess. <laughs> counting up the ballots. And uh, election coverage starts for us at 6 o'clock tonight. And the polls closing at 9. Uh, follow us along and see who the winner will be. Election Ontario election 2022. Let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Nelson, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, Scott, I am. Your thoughts on this? Many have called this election uh, dull. Many have said that it's uneventful. Many have said it's lacking in issues. I'm not sure if it's that or if it's just that the issues, the top issues in this election are very, very different from those elections before uh, the global pandemic. And that means, and by that I mean, uh, they're more economic issues uh, than social issues. What are your thoughts? Has this been dull? Has this been uneventful? Why do you think that? Yes, I think it has been dull, uneventful, some sort of a sleepwalk. Um, why is that? That's a good question. But I, I don't think uh, issues. I think issues are often overrated. We have had issue elections, and we can point to some, uh, specifically the free trade election of 1988. I would say last year's federal election in the last two, three weeks turned on the issue of vaccinations and mm. mandatory vaccinations as things were exploding in Alberta when the feds were sending in medical if not military people, to aid. In this election, um, there is anxiety uh, about things such as affordability, and there's anxiety about health care, although that health care appears in every election. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem to drive the needle, because I think people see it doesn't seem to matter who's in power. Things don't change very much. The main thing I would say, the reason it's been a sleepwalk, has been that um, people are relieved that the pandemic seems to be waning. Hmm. Spirits, it strikes me, are up. Uh, spring has come. Summer is upon us. Uh, the economy has been booming. Unemployment, I don't know whenever it's ever been lower. Uh, most people own their houses. Uh, they're very happy that their house values have skyrocketed, although they're now getting a little anxious as they see interest rates climb up. So on the whole, and it's also a first-term government. It's rare in Ontario to have first-term governments uh, turfed from office. The, the last one, I think, was the Ray NDP government, in the 1990s, but it had been a fluke that the NDP had won in the first place. And also, of course, there's been the change. Uh, Doug Ford completely changed, yeah. although I think he's going to go back to being the old Doug Ford after this election. 
Um, what about the priorities of voters? And this isn't whether it's in the province or across the country. The priorities have changed because I can't remember the last time. And if we talked about housing, it was affordable housing or housing for, for those, uh, in, in low income areas or brackets. But, you know, and, and most of the issues are social issues, especially climate change, which is obviously very important to Canadians. It's just they, they differ in how to get there. But this election, it seems to be healthcare, as you said, because of the pandemic, absolutely, as in all elections, but there very much more economic issues in the top five or so, whether it's the cost of housing, the cost of food, the cost of energy, uh, obviously inflation, interest rates uh, going up and such. And these are issues that are economic that aren't necessarily priorities for the opposition parties. And as I think we've talked before, Nelson, now all four political parties have, have said, yeah, housing's an issue and we got to build a, another 1.5 million in the next 10 years. However, you know, they get there is it, obviously different ways. But is that the difference here is that it's less about social issues, more about economic issues, more about issues that are kitchen table and perhaps less fashionable? That's a good point. But I'm just not sure issues are driving this election campaign. Mm. Because when it comes down to, sure, all the parties want to uh, promise to build more housing, it's not very clear to me what their different strategies are for doing that. Uh, On affordability, I think the pub, when I say affordability, I'm not including, housing affordability is only a problem now for renters and first time buyers. And they're a a minority of the population. Two-thirds of of Ontarians own their own homes. When I think of affordability, I think of the inflation that's now striking in terms of gasoline, food prices, things you see every day. Uh, And uh, I think the public sense is that this isn't anything that any provincial government can control. If any government in Canada can have influence, and I'm not sure it can it would be the federal government, then it wouldn't even be the federal government, it would be a federal agency, the Bank of Canada. And I'm not even sure they have that much control because Mm. it's geopolitical international situations, the COVID lockdown in China, the related supply chain issues, the war in Ukraine. Those are the things that are um, contributing to an affordability crisis or affordability problem for a lot of people. And and that's the case, not just here, it's all around the world. So um, people will, will identify issues that they care about, as you mentioned, climate change, health care, education, taxes, crime. But do they actually vote on the basis of those issues? A lot of voting hmm. is simply based on images of the leaders and party brand a lot of people vote for the same party doesn't matter who their leader is doesn't matter what the issues are they're going to vote for that party because they always have and other people uh, will vote because they feel is it time for a change or not a change so i've just given a couple of examples which i think drive a lot of people in their voting behavior because very few people pour through the platforms that parties toss out. Good point. Nelson Wiseman with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, Election Day in Ontario. Nelson, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. 
the next time you roll up the rim to win, you might be rolling up some information about yourself that uh, maybe you didn't want Timmy's knowing about. Uh, the Tim Hortons app has been found to be violating Canadian privacy laws, tracking people who use it, gathering data, even when the app is not in use. This is the finding of a joint investigation of privacy. Canadian privacy officials into Tim Hortons surveillance of customers through an app installed on millions of mobile phones. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Ann Kevorkian with us, former Ontario Privacy Commissioner, uh, Commissioner, now Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre, Toronto's Metropolitan University, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Very well, thank you. So what is or what was this app guilty of? What was it doing that raised the red flags? Oh, it, it is appalling. And, and the Federal Privacy Commissioner, Daniel Terrien, called it a mass invasion of privacy. Because what they were doing, if you download the, the Tim Hortons app, so you can order things from Tim Hortons when you want it, fine. But what people didn't know is after they downloaded this app, even when the app wasn't in use and the phone was turned off, it was tracking you. It was tracking all of your location, where you went, at what time of day. It is just appalling. A National Post reporter found that, for him, it tracked him 2,700 times in less than five months. It's ridiculous. And he said, I only use Tim Hortons once in a while, and here the darn thing tracked me over 2,700 times, less than five months. It is appalling. How was this discovered? Uh, This gentleman, this wonderful uh, National Post reporter, Mr. McLeod, he um, happened to check something on his mobile device, and he came across all of this tracking activity. And then, fortunately, he complained to the privacy commissioner, uh, Daniel Therrien, who investigated um, and just issued a report. He investigated over a year, and he said, our freedom, uh, our privacy is gone. These activities can completely erode our freedom and our privacy uh, without giving it a moment's thought. Is are, are there not guidelines here? Did this company not know that they were overreaching with this oh. app? Uh, well, they, they sure as heck should have known, and the guideline is quite simple. It's customer consent. If someone consents to use the app, they download it, they give their consent, they use it, and then they turn it off. When they turn it off, theoretically, you're not supposed to use it anymore. But little did people know, even when the device was off, your, your mobile device is off, this app is off, it was tracking you, your comings and going. And as the commissioner said, it can reveal the intimate details of someone's life, not just where you live or work, but where you may worship, what sort of health services you use, who you connect with, perhaps what sexual preferences you might have, political affiliations. So much can be learned by this. It's appalling. So, uh, and I, I understand there was no penalty for this as long as it uh, is fixed. Uh, why is that the case? Um, and again, somebody must have known there was overreach here, whether it's Tim's or the company that they're the, they're having developed this. And yeah, obviously, the, the, this information can be sold. It's profitable. Of course, of course. And their parent company, Restaurant Brands, should have known about it. Someone should have known about it. And the reason there's no penalty is because as Commissioner Therrien has been begging the federal government to do, let's upgrade our federal privacy laws, which were created in the early 2000s. They're over 20 years old. And do you think the Trudeau government has listened to anything Commissioner Therrien has asked for? No, nothing. So we have these old, useless laws with no penalties for this kind of thing. The only thing the commissioner could do is tell them, you got to stop doing this, which hopefully they've done, and hopefully they will delete the information they've collected.
But it's ridiculous. Our laws are outdated. How will we know if they do delete the information? Is anybody checking that? Well, hopefully this this reporter who found it and the commissioner's office will hopefully be able to do an audit. Because like you said, you have to look under the hood. Trust but verify. Actually, these days, don't trust. Just verify. Make sure they're doing this. So I'm sure they'll be all over this. So what would they? What would their reasoning be for doing this? And let's not pretend that they were ignorant uh, of this, because uh, you well, know these companies are yeah. very large and have resources. So yes. what, 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 they, what would happen to this information? What's the reason maybe, for them doing it? Are they selling I it? Can't, is it? I can't imagine, but maybe they want to see if you're going to a competitor. How often you might go to a competing fast food restaurant? I, I'm just pulling this out of the air. I don't know, but the, you would think something like that. It's possible they could sell it. Um, but it's crazy that the device, this tracking was on continually collecting customers' location data. And Tim Hortons, you know, misled users into thinking that the information was only being accessed when they use the app to order something from Tim Hortons. It's a so the issue, so the issue here, Anne, was that the fact that even when you shut this thing off, it was still collecting data. Exactly. That is what is the worst part about this which is why it will collect so much more information about this, you than you ever, ever contemplated. It's, um, it, this app it goes beyond not complying with privacy laws. It's, it's mass surveillance, tracking your comings and goings, and it can connect who you're going on, you know, connecting with. It's truly highly personal information about customers without their consent. And you see, privacy is all about control, personal control relating to the use and disclosure of your personal information. No one should be allowed to do this. What about others doing this, other companies? A good question. I'm sure these are guys are not the only ones. That's why we need stronger laws that will enable the privacy commissioner's offices to engage in audits on a regular basis and look under the hood at what these guys are doing. I remember one time, Ann, when uh, people were going were to get upset or were getting upset because people were putting up surveillance cameras in public yes. places and such. Now, yes. of course, everyone has one in their device. Um, oh. it, with the new digital society that we have become, um, is there, are we just, do we care about this? Are we just finding this acceptable? Oh. Yeah, that's okay. I no, don't no. care if they're tracking me. No, that's what's wrong. Privacy concern has never been higher. In the last two years, all of the public opinion polls, Pew Internet Research, etc., have come in at the 90 percentile for concern for privacy. 90 percent very concerned about their privacy. 92 percent concerned about loss of control over their personal information. People hate this. We have to do something about it. What can we do? What needs to be done here? You know, here's where we can all ask questions. One thing I do, like when I go into physical stores, and they, they, you know, I pay for my thing and they say, oh, can we have your postal code? And I say, well, what are you going to do with it? Are you protecting my privacy? Are you going to link it with my identifiable data? The clerk never knows. He goes and gets the manager. Once the manager hears what I'm saying and he says, oh, you care about privacy. Oh, we can do this, this, and this. The minute you express your concern for privacy, there are things they can do and they will do. But you have to express your concern again and again. Let's all do that. Fascinating. Now, do you think that less of us are because we're on the digital age saying what I was saying before? We've just oh. accepted this, just like cameras on the corner. We're, we, yeah, I, you know. You know, I don't think we're accepting it. I think it's difficult for people to know what to do about it, which is why I do mm. a lot of public speaking and tell people things they can do. We have to speak up. You don't look at the odds. You forget about the odds. You stand up for freedom. Privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. You never give up. 
Dr. Ann Kevorkian with us, former Ontario Privacy Commissioner, now Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre, Toronto, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Tim Hortons uh, having some issues with an app that uh, track you even when it is not in use. And as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.